This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. Glioblastoma, or GBM from now on, is the most common and malignant of all primary adult brain tumours. It has an average survival of only 15 months, and it's also the deadliest. And about half of those with brain cancer have that form of cancer, and survival rates haven't changed in around 50 years. But thanks to their breakthrough research and a large bank of tumour tissue, Professor Brian Day and his team are developing a tool that hopefully will identify a weak spot in the tumour and target it. And Brian is a group leader of the SID Faithful Brain Cancer Laboratory here. Thanks for joining me via Zoom, Brian. Thanks, Claire. It's, uh, it's great to be here. So we'll do glioblastoma as GBM from here on in. Uh, what is it? Why does it happen? And is it familial? Um, I think, as you said in your introduction, glioblastoma is the most common and aggressive form of adult brain cancer. Unfortunately, we haven't improved overall survival really for the last few decades. But interestingly, there's really no familial link. There are some rare forms of brain cancer where there can be a, a link to your family. But by and large, it really is a disease of aging. As you age, you acquire mutations. And so if you're unlucky enough, you get mutations in certain genes and then this can give rise to brain tumours. Brain tumours arise um, can arise from a number of different cells and so there's glial cells in your brain and we know that these are typically the cells uh, where your tumours form but also interestingly as the tumour forms there's a population of cells called stem cells or cancer stem cells and we know that these cells are really responsible for both the initiation of the disease so starting the disease but also for the disease recurring. This is something that we're quite focused on in the lab, learning ways in which to target these stem cells. We know that stem cells also, unfortunately, are actually quite resistant to the standards of care. So they're quite resistant to chemotherapy and radiation. And recurrence is the big frightening thing about brain cancer, isn't it? We really have not prolonged survival very much, and that is due to a number of key disease obstacles. So we know, obviously, your brain is a very precious organ, but we know that these tumours are, are highly infiltrative. And so at surgical resection, um, the neuros neurosurgeon will try and take the bulk of the tumour, but there is always residual tumour cells left behind. And also there's this issue of stem cells. We know that there are particular populations of cells that are resistant to this radiation and chemotherapy. and so. Unfortunately, in probably more than 95% of cases, tumours come back and then we're left with this big problem, which we're trying to solve. Well, a major leap came with you developing the Brain Tumour Bank, which I want to talk about. It was an incredible collaboration, really, with patients and means you now have access to really unprecedented tissue samples. And what does that allow you to do now that you couldn't previously? I think it's worth commenting that historically the brain cancer field really has been is really quite small and because of the very poor prognosis and difficulty of the disease it was really put in the too hard basket for many 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 years and so we know uh, that there's many tumor types that are a lot more prevalent so for example melanoma kills around a thousand people a year in australia but brain cancer which is much rarer also kills around a thousand people a year and so for many many years brain cancer was put in this too hard basket. People really didn't focus on it. There wasn't a lot of funding going towards that. It was understudied. And so I think one of the other big problems for us in the lab is when we're trying to work on these diseases is 
Obviously, we need tissue to work on, we need tumour tissue to work on, and we need brain cancer cells to work on. And also, if you imagine a laboratory scientist going to work every day while they're working on cells with a toolkit of particular reagents and drugs, and so in the context of brain cancer, the toolkit is quite small. And so we really put a lot of effort into forming a tumour bank in collaboration with the Royal Brisbane Hospital. The neurosurgeon clinicians have really been great. They've got behind what we do here at QIMR and have supported us for a number of years. We wanted to develop it in a very considered way. And in many, many cases, we've been able to generate a cell line, by which I mean grow the brain cancer cells in the dish. And that really enables us to drive our discovery research. Um, The foundation of the house is a really good way to describe what a tumour bank and the associated cell line models can do. For us trying to imagine the bank, what does it look like? Is it Petri dishes? Is it a freezer? <laughs> it's a large minus 80 freezer with where we have annotated pieces of tissue that we can go back and disassociate or chop up, if you will, the tumour cells into single cells and then we cryopreserve those in liquid nitrogen. And so that's a really wonderful resource where we can come back and actually pull those cells out many, many years later and look at them and analyse them in great detail because we don't know what's down the track in terms of research. We don't know what new and innovative technique is going to come. And so we try to give ourselves the greatest scope possible from our tumour bank so that we can leverage those discoveries. Have you learnt anything new from this? Most people had a really, really had a, a poor rate of developing these cell lines. They just wouldn't grow in the dish. There was a new breakthrough method coming out of the US, which we adopted. Essentially, we could grow a cell line from a brain cancer patient you know, 98% of the time. We made a panel of these cell lines, 12 of them, and actually characterised them uh, in really great detail. And so we've made those freely available now all around the world to the academic community. And so they're in many, many major centres in the US, uh, they're in Europe, they're all over Australia and, and in the UK and now in Asia as well. Sort of, I guess, humble researchers, and we don't really recognise sometimes the impact that we have, but these cell lines really have gone all around the world and have led to many, many discoveries, actually. So there's more than 50 publications have now come from the cell line models that we have made, and those have led on to subsequent clinical trials. That is an extraordinary result of collaboration, uh, which you are well known for. How did you end up with this responsibility? How did you get into this? What's the passion, Brian? Actually, I was working as a nutritionist at the Wesley Private Hospital. Uh, I was working on the oncology ward and um, it really affected me, I think, seeing all these cancer patients going through their therapy on the ward. And uh, at the same time, I was actually living with some UQ researchers um, just really by chance. And so my academic bent and my interest in science sort of got reinvigorated through that process. And then I thought, well, I might go back and do my PhD. And so I, I joined a lab under Professor Andrew Boyd and also another oncologist called Jason Licklider at QIMR at the time. You know, Jason really had an interest in melanoma and brain cancer. I had a sort of a mini breakdown after 12 months of trying to juggle two diseases and I understood that the problem of brain cancer was bigger. Uh, I guess been focusing on brain cancer ever since. Your innovation is well documented to find the answer for these people who are really struggling with this disease and you also have uh, GBM organoids What are they and how might they help identify new treatments? Thanks, Claire. Yes, it's a great question. All of us as cancer biologists who work in cancer labs, we're always striving to have the best models that we can to understand our disease and have known for a long time that when you put cells in the dish, any cells and cancer cells particularly, 
they change quite a bit because they're proliferating and dividing and because it's an artificial environment. Obviously, we're always trying to get closer to models where they best mimic or recapitulate the true disease. And so now there's been this movement over the last sort of probably 10 years, but really picking up steam in the last few years, people have been adopting these 3D or organoid culture techniques. The most cutting edge technique now that we've recently adopted over the last couple of years is where we actually take tissue, tumour tissue directly from the theatre and just manually chop it up into little pieces. And then we can grow it in the dish in a spinning bottle, if you will, and it spins around. And what happens is these tumour cells amazingly actually are able to survive and keep growing and form these little mini organoids. Why they're so exciting is because everything is still intact. We know all the blood vessels are still there. We know the immune cells are still there. And we know that the tumour cells are still there and all the associated stroma. And so this is a really wonderful model now. The responses that you get in organoids match far better to the patient than sort of the traditional cell line models that we once used. And I've seen the organoids from another lab and as soon as they start forming in these little 3D patterns, they look like a tiny brain. Uh, yeah, so they're actually, uh, it's really interesting that the tumour cells sort of, because they're the fast proliferating cells, sort of grow on the outside and so you do get these little mini spherical brain type structures. We're also doing some work with a collaborator at QIMR who has the ability to actually form normal brain organoids um, using pluripotent stem cells. Uh, and he grows these organoids for a number of months. And then actually what we're able to do is put tumour cells into them and show how the tumour cells would invade into this normal organoid. Really cutting edge approaches. And for us, that inspires us in the lab. To us, that's really cool in that we've got this cool technology. But more importantly, it enables us to really assess these tumour cells uh, invade and migrate into the normal brain and then form a mass and a lesion. Well, it's been the biggest struggle because of all the organs in the body. It's the hardest to get access to. It's got the big, thick skull and the blood-brain barriers. So this must be so helpful. Uh, yes, this is a, absolutely a breakthrough for us in the lab. And you know we're really excited about it. Um, and it really does give us access to look at those um, minute and really complicated interactions that occur in the brain in a very easy, accessible way in the dish and really generate discoveries that before we've never been able to do. Well, yes, it's allowed you and your colleague to be able to look at the role of EPHA3. And I'm sure you have a nickname for that, Brian. I hope you do. Thanks, Claire. Yes, well, these EPH, or as we call them, F, so sort of abbreviate them to F to make it a little bit simpler in the lab. So when you're in your mother's womb and you are obviously forming, all the tissues in your body require messages to turn on and off. For example, in the brain, when your brain forms the two halves, the cells would grow up and then these families of F receptors would actually give a signal to tell the cells to keep growing, keep growing, keep growing, and then stop. And so this really allows all the tissue boundaries to form within your body. And a classic example, um, I got interested in this FA3 family member. What we found was that patients with brain cancer who actually had increased levels of this protein, they did much worse. And so they had a poorer prognosis. And so that really gave us a strong clue that this particular protein or receptor 
was really involved in the development of these tumours. And so we started work on developing antibody therapeutics to target just this receptor. And so after a long body of work um, and you know, much uh, laboratory science trying to understand the function, we were able to get that into a clinical trial. Uh, and so that was really exciting for me personally. It was a long body of work. The other exciting part was that actually it ended up being a sort of homegrown Australian clinical trial in two sites, one at the Austin and Melbourne and here at the Royal Brisbane at QIMR. But I think the exciting component was that we're able to actually do some imaging. And what we found was that we got very, very specific targeting to the brain tumour. And also uh, there was really no binding in the normal brain. All that we could hope for at that point in that we've really got a great safe antibody, which we know now penetrates the tumour and only the tumour. And so we're now pursuing the next steps to make this a better targeted therapy to really see if we can use this antibody as a warhead to really target these patients' aggressive tumours and prolong survival and really overcome this terrible disease. Brian, alongside this work, you also have active projects going on paediatric cancer. How much do these two overlap? That's a really good question. Uh, there's a little bit of history there. It's worth noting that the biggest killer of children is accidents, unfortunately. The second biggest killer of children is brain cancer. We've made great progress in things like childhood leukaemia, but unfortunately, um, we had made good progress for paediatric brain cancers. Now, once again, as I explained in the adult, it was put in the too hard basket. And I think the same is definitely the case for paediatric brain cancers. A really exciting initiative has been formed with the Children's Hospital Foundation, where QIMR Berghofer, in collaboration with the University of Queensland, QUT and the Royal Children's Hospital, have started this Children's Brain Cancer Centre. And the idea of the centre is not just to do discovery science, it's discovery science, obviously, and make breakthroughs, but also to impact the families and children. And so we're really interested in trying to improve every aspect that matters to these families. Uh, so that's been a really great initiative. And I think, as you alluded to, there's quite a number of overlaps. And so the, the main disease obstacles are blood-brain barrier, brain-brain, you know, very precious site, and the difficulties of chemotherapy and radiation and how they're administered all those problems really overlap between adult and paediatric. Interestingly, it turns out this EPHA3 receptor that we're working on in adult is also quite highly expressed and functional in, in the paediatric setting. And so we're working now actively in my group to really progress that research so that we can get to clinical testing of FA3 antibodies in children as well. Thanks so much, Brian. And if you'd like to know more about Professor Brian Day and his team in the Sid Faithful Brain Cancer Lab or donate, go to qimrberghofer.edu.au. Thanks, Claire. It was wonderful to speak to you and share a little bit about our research and the progress that we're making. And hopefully, you know, we'll really be able to help these patients now and start to not only improve their outcomes, but also their quality of life. 